Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to EuroNurse. I'm your host, Vic Sinise. Welcome to the show. If you're watching us live, great. Glad to have you on board on any of our platforms. If I hit the right button, there we go. Uh, use that comment box to ask questions during the show. And if you're on YouTube, that's our main go-to channel. Be sure to hit the subscribe button, the like button. We'll drive that algorithm crazy. This is your first time joining us. Be sure to check out our website at euronurse.com, the best place to go to learn more about the show and the best place to watch all of our past 82 episodes. Want to listen to us in the car? Great. You go to our Euronurse Plus area and you'll be able to find our podcast anywhere you want. Interesting story. My son called me uh, the other day. He's a salesman, works for the Lysol company, and he had a, a road trip to one of his clients. And he said, hey, I downloaded a bunch of your AI stuff on uh, Euronurse to listen to in my car. He says, it was really fun to listen to you during the show, you know, listening to the show. He said, I learned a few things. He had some questions for me, too. So you will learn a few things here. If you're not getting our newsletter, go ahead and hit our website up and just subscribe. You'll get all that information every Monday about the show. It's a really nice thing to be part of. And this week, I'm going to be speaking about tips and tricks about androgen deprivation, what things that we're going to do to help uh, people along that are, are having problems. So we're going to go ahead and bring in our experts right now. Experts, uh, welcome to the show. Hey. Good morning. Morning, everyone. So yeah, kind of a, a little late start. I know getting going here today with some technical difficulties, there are always something that'll come up, but uh, got a great show for you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring in our experts to introduce themselves. We'll start with Lori. Hi, my name is Lori Atkinson. I'm a certified urology registered nurse. I've been in urology for 25 years now. Um, and I work for a urology practice here in Geneva and Winfield, Illinois. And I hope you guys, I didn't notice this earlier, but Vic pointed it out that my background is blurred, but you could see my bunny because I'm actually starting to get ready for Easter. <laughs> the flowers are coming up and you're ready for Easter. I am. John, go ahead and give us your introduction. Good morning. I am passionate about helping urologists succeed so they can reach maximum clinical and financial success. To that end, I created the Thriving Urology Practice Facebook group where we crowdsource practice management solutions for everyone's benefit. I frequently speak on topics of coding, billing, revenue cycle marketing, and how to run your practices more efficiently in the era of declining reimbursement and rising practice overhead. I'm John Lynn, a private practice urologist in Gilbert, Arizona, and I look forward to our discussion today. Great. Glad to have everybody on board. And uh, you may notice Andrea Strong is not with us today because she's over at the SUNA meeting. Now, Andrea is being our little Euronurse correspondent, and she sent this to us.
All righty. Well, I think I created a monster. She's getting pretty good with that editing talent. So thanks for that, uh, that piece you sent us in, Andrea. Enjoy the rest of the show. So let's get right to it. Prostate cancer, hormonal ablation, administration tips or tricks. I got the idea for this episode because as many of you know, I'm, I'm uh, working part-time now, uh, a joy of getting to be older. And that's why I've got time to do things like Euronurse. Well, recently I had to give a uh, Eligard injection, which I hadn't done in at least a year. And they changed things with the, the administration kit. So I had, of course, read through it a little bit to familiarize myself with how it's now mixed. And I started thinking, you know, this might be a good thing to talk about for our group. So here it is. Now, you can't talk about hormone ablation without mentioning Charles Huggins. He's a Chicago guy, by the way. He uh, uh, won the Nobel Prize in medicine for his research in showing that the course of the disease, uh, prostate cancer, could be altered by hormonal therapy. So we owe a lot of this to him. Of course, a lot of patients owe having their testicles now in jars because of him too, but the primary treatment was <laughs> bilateral orchiectomy for uh, prostate cancer. Now, you know, this was early on back in the 60s when this first started uh, coming out. And that was the best way. The other option was giving female hormones, but we know the, you know, the dangers of heart attack and stroke that come with uh, high doses of uh, estrogens. So anyway, I uh, was around before the uh, chemical castration was available. So I can remember some of these patients coming in, you know, it's also before PSA and a lot of patients, when we met them, they had advanced prostate cancer. Wasn't unusual to see a patient come in in a wheelchair and, you know, diagnosed with prostate cancer, we scheduled them for bilateral orchiectomy. The amazing thing was when they came back for their follow-up visit walking. It was like you witnessed a miracle sometimes. It was just uh, so impressive how the taking away that testosterone. Now, we know it doesn't last forever, but, I mean, talk about quality of life differences when you go from a wheelchair to walking into your next visit. <clears throat> so this was a great discovery. Now, along at 85, this is Chicago, by the way, in 1985. There was the release of chemical castration agents, and Lupron would be the first one to hit the market. And I can tell you that uh, it started out with a, a daily dose, which didn't get too much popularity. But once the once a month depo injection came around, this became kind of the go to drug for uh, most practices. And you know, some practices almost became exclusive in in how much they could you know uh, give of this medication for treatment. So uh, it was kind of nice because. I think that these injections have become the domain of nursing. We were the ones that were giving them. And you really seeing the same patients over and over again every month, you developed a lot of rapport. We talked about families, friends, all sorts of things. So it was kind of a neat, uh, a neat thing, but not convenient when you're trying to travel, et cetera. Now, this drug is called a gonadotrophin-releasing hormone, GNRH agonist. Now, agonist, as it indicates, is a, is a plus. It, it increases this particular thing. The drugs that we're going to be discussing are the luprolides, which are Lupron and Eligard, the Gosslerins, which is Zolodex, Triptorlin, which is Trellstar, and Histrolin, which is Vantis. I've given all of the medications with the exception of Vantis, which is a um, I'll show you, we've got some slides on it, but it's, it's given us, uh, put in a surgical implant of a pellet, um, which our urologists do. So I got involved with it, but we didn't do a lot of those, by the way, um, because I think our docs really preferred to make this the, the realm of nursing. Now, how do they work? So the uh, GNRH stimulates the hypothalamus, which in turn 
stimulates the pituitary to increase luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, LH and FSH, which then drives the Leydig cells in the testicles to produce more testosterone. Now, wait a second, more testosterone. That doesn't sound right, does it? And uh, that's exactly how they work, though, by driving them. Now, I found this uh, diagram, which I thought made a lot of sense because, um, you know, again, how does this work? Well, normally we have GnRH that's working to to send off the LH, but it's in a pulsatile type, you know, dosing. So it's not a steady state. And so it's up and down and it sends a steady state of testosterone by stimulating the testicles. Now, when you uh, give it as a dose where it's stimulating them all the time, like we see here, what happens is that stimulation overdrives the testicles to start producing testosterone. And then by a feedback loop, it realizes there's too much. So it shuts everything down and goes into the antagonist phase. And that's what we're looking for. We're trying to get that benefit. So you oversaturate to underproduce. And that's what we see. So what happens is you give this injection and testosterone level goes way up and then it comes down to castrate levels. Um, the, they call this the testosterone flare that you can see sometimes with uh, these injections. Now, you know, sometimes that's not really a big problem, but if you take somebody that's got bony metastasis, it could be a huge issue because it's almost like pouring fire, you know, gasoline on fire. And, you know, if they've got significant disease, you may increase their pain levels, even pathological fractures. So you have to be careful if, uh, you know, assessing the patient before you start these drugs, whether the flare effect would be an issue. Now, there are medications on the market called hormone blockers which prevent the testosterone from entering into the cells. And the first one was flutamide and then bicalutamide. There was another one in between there called Nalandron. I forgot to put that in the notes because we didn't use it much. It had a weird side effect that if you uh, went into like a tunnel and then came out of the tunnel, you were blind for a while. And if you're driving through Pennsylvania where there's a lot of tunnels, that could be pretty dangerous. So it had this eye effect. We just kind of avoided it. Flutamide, by the way, is, is off the market as far as I'm aware because of some liver issues, uh, but Casadex is still available and can be used. What we would do is put patients on this medication about 10 days to two weeks before their injection so they have steady states to block that testosterone when you have that flare. And this can also be used in conjunction with those uh, GnRH agonists. So what's the reason to talk about this? Well, it's pretty confusing. We have all these different products out there. Not a one of them is, is, is similarly given or, or mixed the same. I mean, they've got some similarities, but they're all different. And really, the uh, you know, if you're using them all, which I can tell you we've used every one of them in our office, you, know, you have to learn how to give them. So we're going to go into that. Also, the needles aren't even the same size. And sometimes that needle can make a difference. I do have a chart here that shows needle size. The Zolidex has the largest needle at a 14-gauge. Eligard's an 18-gauge needle, and those are both pretty large needles, especially you start thinking about you know somebody who's on a blood thinner or like most patients nowadays are on aspirin therapy. Um, I can tell you that I've seen some Zolidex and Eligard uh, big, big old black and blue patches on their abdomen from the injection. So maybe one to avoid with those patients or at least give with precautions. And then you get to something like Trellstar, which is a 21 gauge, and Lupron, a 23 gauge. So that's the, the needle size for you. Now, 
I'm going to go through some videos here uh, that were put out by the companies. I kind of whittled them down a bit to get some of the advertisement side out of it, but just get the information. And then I'm going to bring our, our experts on after these little films play and we'll kind of talk our, our tips and tricks. We're going to start with Lupron. Let's start with the key features of the syringe. All doses of Lupron Depot have this fine 23 gauge 1.5 inch IM needle. The Lupron Depot delivery system includes the LuproLock safety device, a built-in safety mechanism to help prevent needle stick injuries. And here is the pre-filled dual chamber syringe. Remember, no external mixing of ingredients or refrigeration is required. Preparing for administration. Your Lupron Depot administration kit contains one plunger, one pre-filled dual chamber syringe or PDS, Luprolock safety device, and two alcohol swabs. Additionally, you should have a few basic supplies on hand. Gauze pads, adhesive bandages, latex or latex-free surgical gloves, and a puncture-resistant container. Injection sites include deltoid, dorsogluteal, ventrogluteal, and vastus lateralis. The first step is to assemble the medication. Visually inspect the Lupron Depot powder. Do not use the syringe if you see any clumping or caking. A thin layer of powder on the wall of the syringe is considered normal, but the diluent should appear clear. To prepare for injection, screw the white plunger into the end stopper until the stopper begins to turn. To help avoid needle tip leakage, hold the syringe upright. To release the diluent, slowly push the plunger for 6 to 8 seconds until the first stopper is at the blue line in the middle of the barrel. Be sure not to pull the plunger back or downward at any time during the mixing process, which will help in prevention of stopper separation. Keep the syringe upright. Thoroughly mix the powder by gently shaking the syringe until the powder forms a uniform suspension. To help avoid leakage, do not shake the syringe too vigorously. The suspension should appear milky. If the powder adheres to the stopper, or if you see caking or clumping, tap the syringe with your finger to disperse. Do not use the syringe if any of the powder has not gone into suspension. Continue holding the syringe upright. With your other hand, pull the needle cap upward without twisting. This may help minimize the potential for product leakage. Keeping the syringe upright, advance the plunger to expel the air from the syringe. Now the syringe is ready for injection. Next is step two, inject. To inject the medication, clean the injection site with an alcohol swab and insert the needle at a 90-degree angle into the chosen intramuscular injection site. Remember, injection sites should be alternated. Note that if a blood vessel is accidentally penetrated, you may see aspirated blood just below the lure lock connection through the transparent Luprolock safety device. If this occurs, remove the needle immediately and do not inject the medication. Once reconstituted, immediately inject the entire contents of the syringe intramuscularly as the suspension settles very quickly following reconstitution. 
The third and final step is discarding the syringe and needle. After the injection, withdraw the needle. Immediately activate the Luprolox safety device by pushing the arrow upward with your thumb or finger until the needle cover of the safety device is fully extended over the needle and you hear or feel a click. Finally, dispose of the syringe according to applicable regulations or procedures. So there we have it. That was the Lupron. I'm going to give my little tip and trick on it. Uh, I, I, if, if there was nothing else out there, Lupron would be my favorite one to pick out of all of them because I think that they've got the best administration system. Of course, I'm sure they've got it uh, you know, patented, and that's why none of the other ones can use that. But it's super easy to mix, super easy to give. I always give this ventral gluteal myself. I found that it's uh, one of the safest places to give the medication. There's, you know, not a lot of nerves, not a lot of blood vessels to hit, and it's a pretty much a painless injection. So for me, tip and trick, ventral gluteal IM injection, um, easiest one to mix. And I'll put it to the panel. Any thoughts on Lupron? Lori? No, I, I agree with you. I, I like Lupron the best. I've given pretty much all of them, obviously not the Vantas. Um, but I think with Lupron, it's just an easy delivery. People don't complain a lot about it. Um, our, our particular office no longer, we don't use Lupron in, in this particular office, which is killing me, but I'm sure it has <laughs> a lot to do with contracts and costs and things like that, unfortunately. Um, but the only thing I would say is that always educate your patients about it. Um, I think that they need to know that they may be sore in that area because if you don't warn them of those little things, you mm -hmm. might maybe even you have a blue bruise or a lump or something, um, then they're going to be calling you the next day. So it's important to let them know. That yeah, good point. Be, you know, a little bit sore. And John could probably talk about the cost side of it, why Lupron has kind of dropped out of favor. Well, uh, Lori, what are you guys using in your in that particular clinic? We're using Elgard. Okay, and that's Sounds what we're, we we've kind of switched over to also. Something that you haven't listed that you're going to mention is Camsevi. Are you guys using that at all? No. Never heard of it. Yeah, it's <laughs> throw some more stuff in the mix. Camsevi is lupulide misylate instead of lupulide acetate. No mm. mixing involved. Wow. Yeah. And wow. not intramuscular, but subcutaneous injection. And what's the length of uh, durability? How long they, is it? Cur currently, they, they only have a 42 milligram or a six-month formulation. But I'm sure they're going to come out with probably yeah. three, four, one month, etc. It's just probably just reducing the dose and getting the FDA clearance. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, the the key is no mixing at all. Yeah, it's so much easier for my staff. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the big issues. Is as we'll go through as we see all these different ways you mix it, um, and I mentioned a little bit about needle size, etc. There's there's such a variance in all these products. They all work well. I mean, you see the the active results that you want, but uh, there is a difference. All right, now we're gonna clinically get efficacious. Yes. Yeah. One thing oh. I wanted to say about Lupron as well is that. You know, I know that we're in a hurry as nurses to give those injections. Be patient. Make sure that you're mixing that drug all the way yeah. so the powder is gone. So, and look into Camsevi. And it's a good yeah, time. Right. It's a good time to talk to the patient about side effects while you're sitting there swirling the Lupron. You know, right? They kind of get hypnotized by it. 
Um, by the way, folks that are out in our live audience, I know we have a live audience out there. If you've got questions anytime through any of these drugs, feel free to put them in. Laurie, I'll bring those up on screen. All right, I'm going to get to the next one, which is our Eligard. This video will show you how to mix and administer Eligard with the new pre-connected syringe system. This new system helps to streamline the mixing process by providing the syringes in a single pre-connected unit. Is currently only available in a 45 milligram six month dose. Before using, a quick reminder, Eligard should be stored at 35.6 to 46.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Once outside the refrigerator, Eligard may be stored in its original packaging at room temperature, 59 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit, for up to eight weeks prior to mixing and administration. Before you begin the mixing and administration process, you need to allow the product to reach room temperature by removing from the refrigerator. Allow product to reach room temperature before mixing. Preparing the pre-connected syringe system. Eligard comes in a tray containing the pre-connected syringe system and a safety needle. Open the tray with gloves by tearing off the foil from the corner of the tray. Empty the contents onto a clean surface. After opening the tray, discard the desiccant pack included in the tray pack. It's important to open the needle pack now so it's ready to attach. Grasp the latching button on the connector and press until a snapping sound is heard. The two syringes will be lined up. Mixing the product. To thoroughly mix the product, Inject the liquid contents of syringe A into the luprolide acetate powder contained in syringe B. Gently push the contents of both syringes in a horizontal position back and forth for 60 cycles to obtain a homogeneous viscous suspension. A cycle is one push of the plunger for both syringe A and B. Do not bend the syringe system. This may cause leakage as you may partially unscrew the syringes. The suspension may appear colorless, white, or pale yellow once properly mixed. After mixing, Eligard must be administered within 30 minutes. After mixing, hold the syringes vertically with syringe B, the wide syringe, on the bottom. The syringes should remain securely coupled. Transfer all of the mixed product into syringe B by depressing the syringe A plunger and slightly withdrawing the syringe B plunger. While ensuring the syringe A plunger is fully pushed down, hold the coupling device and unscrew it from syringe B. Syringe A will remain attached to the coupling device. Small air bubbles will remain in the formulation. This is acceptable. Do not purge the air bubbles from syringe B as some product may be lost. Continue to hold syringe B upright with the open end at the top. Hold back the white plunger on syringe B to prevent loss of the product and attach the safety needle cartridge. Gently screw clockwise with approximately a three-quarter turn until the needle is secure. Do not over-tighten as this may cause cracking of the needle hub, resulting in leakage of the product during injection. Move the safety shield away from the needle and pull off the protective needle cover prior to administration. Do not operate the safety needle mechanism before administration. Small air bubbles will remain in the formulation. This is acceptable. Do not purge the air bubbles from syringe B as some product may be lost. 
administering the product. Select an injection site on the abdomen, upper buttocks, or another location with adequate amounts of subcutaneous tissue that does not have excessive pigment, nodules, lesions, or hair, and hasn't recently been used. Cleanse the injection site area with an alcohol swab not included with Eligard. Using the thumb and forefinger, grab and bunch the area of skin around the injection site. Using your dominant hand, insert the needle quickly at a 90-degree angle to the skin surface. The depth of penetration will depend on the amount and fullness of the subcutaneous tissue and the length of the needle. After the needle is inserted, release the skin and inject the drug using a slow, steady push and press down on the plunger until the syringe is empty. Please ensure that the full amount of the product in syringe B is injected before removing the needle. Withdraw the needle quickly at the same 90-degree angle used for insertion while maintaining pressure on the plunger. When injecting the suspension, you may expect that you need to use more pressure compared to other injectable products because the suspension is relatively viscous. Immediately following the withdrawal of the needle, activate the safety shield using a finger or thumb or flat surface and push until it completely covers the needle tip and locks into place. You should hear an audible click when locked into position. Once the safety shield is locked, immediately dispose of the needle and syringe in an appropriate biohazard container. Ah, there we have it. So that's Eligard. So my first comment on Eligard is, you know, they have improved their mixing system with that click thing so it's all together before you had to kind of put things together. But it, it's refrigerated. You got to take it out of the refrigerator, let it warm up. Now they say it could be stored for a period of time. So if you kind of know your patients that are coming in, you could pull a bunch of them out to have them ready. Um, but I can tell you in, in our day-to-day workflow, that's not what we do. So it's usually take it out and wait for it to warm up. Um, it is still 60 mixes back and forth, takes time. Not the most convenient. However, they're probably the most aggressively marketed in, in, in the pricing realm, which is why a lot of companies have switched over to Eligard. As a, a medication, my tip is I usually give it uh, in the abdomen and mostly because there's less uh, pain receptors in the abdomen to give the injection to. So it's less painful than trying to give it to those other areas they mentioned. Um, the one caution I will say, if you got a really, really thin patient, this is a rough one to give. You have to have that subcutaneous. You can get a nice grip of some skin there to you know inject down into. It's great. But if they're really, really thin. Um, probably not the best drug to use. Uh, I would be more apt to want to have an intermuscular for that patient. Uh, and again, like Lori had said, they're going to have some, maybe some burning at the injection site. If they're on blood thinners, maybe stay away from that one, or it's at the very least, make sure that you hold pressure on it so that you don't get a hematoma forming underneath it. So that's what I'm going to uh, leave as my tip and trick. Lori, any tips and tricks? You covered a lot. <laughs> um, but I would say, I mean, I do, we do it in the abdomen usually too. Um, it's true with those really thin people, it's rough. Um, the good thing, I guess, about Eligard is that you can give it while they're sitting in a chair, you know, it, it's a little bit, um, so that, um, you don't have, although I do like to, if they can, I like them to lay on a table. Um, and that way I know I'm really getting a good fat, you know, it up as yeah. And they've got these rolls and, and you're trying to find a good spot. But one of the things that I would probably um, really recommend is if you are doing it in the abdomen, avoid the areas that are rubbing up against that area, the belt line, 
yeah. um, you know, things that, that are going to, to irritate. Because if you do it in the belt line, obviously, you know, it's it may be sore as it is afterwards. And now your belt buckle or your pants are rubbing up against that same area. Yeah, good point. John, any comments? Well, for, for the folks on the front lines, uh, you may not know that the payment for these drugs, they change every quarter. And, and the government will set out payment guidelines because government is the largest payer. Uh, the practices tend to watch what they do. So say, for instance, the quarter starts at the beginning of the year. If you were to purchase the medication at the other price at the end of the previous year at a higher price, and then you administer the drug after January, for instance, it'll be the next quarter. And at that time, the reimbursement for, say, Allegard or Lupron goes down. Then you've just lost money. Yes. So it's important to make sure that you order as you need it instead of sitting a lot of stock. And a lot of the companies do have these order things that track your, your needs so they can kind of get it to you quickly. But that's a good point. Yeah, so, you also I, have to be very careful about insurance companies because we do a prior auth on every one of those drugs because you never know. Some yeah. some even insurance companies will prefer Elegard over Lupron or Lupron over, you know, so you have yeah. to that as well. Yeah, good point. All right, moving along, Zolidex. Zolidex is administered in a ready-to-use sterile syringe. Zolidex is delivered by the Safe System Syringe, which is designed with a protective needle sleeve to reduce your risk of needle stick injuries. Administration is straightforward. Ensure the patient is in a comfortable position with the upper part of the body slightly raised. Prepare an area of the anterior abdominal wall below the navel line using a septic technique. A convenience pack, including a bandage, gauze, and an alcohol swab, is provided in the Zolodex carton. Remove the safe system syringe from the pouch and ensure that at least part of the implant is visible by holding the syringe at a slight angle to the light. Remember, the implant is not a liquid, so you don't need to remove air from the syringe and attempts to do so may displace the Zolodex implant. Grasp the red plastic safety tab. Gently peel it up and away from the plunger and discard it. Remove the needle cover. Using a septic technique, pinch the patient's abdomen below and two inches out from the navel line. With the bevel of the needle facing up, grasp the protective sleeve of the syringe with the pointer finger, middle finger and thumb. Insert the needle subcutaneously at a 30 to 45 degree angle to the skin in one continuous deliberate motion until the protective sleeve touches the skin. While continuing to pinch the patient's abdomen, move your fingers back to the syringe finger grip and place your thumb on the plunger. Depress the plunger fully until you cannot depress it any further to deliver the implant. Fully depressing the plunger ensures the implant has been deposited in the correct location in the abdomen. The safe system will be activated as you withdraw the needle. The protective sleeve will deploy and cover the syringe. Dispose of the syringe in an approved Sharps collector.
So this one, I love this one. <laughs> it's uh, it's no mixing. So just call me lazy. There's no mixing involved. Again, my big issue is, as I mentioned, we talked about uh, needle size. That's the largest needle. That's a 14 gauge because it's a small implant that you're pushing in there. Um, so really, as long as the patient's not on blood thinners and has, you know, the typical American build, nice juicy abdomen to hit, they're the perfect candidate for this one. As, as far as uh, giving it, it's super easy to give. And that uh, that needle cover thing is so cool because, I mean, when you give it, it's just snaps out as you're pulling the thing out. There's no other steps. It's just, it's it's like magic. So that's my comment. Love it. Not good for skinny people or for blood thinners. Lori? I'm actually surprised that they still make it. I haven't heard of Zolodex in quite some time now. And I think that a long time ago when we used to give that that needle size scares you when you look at it at first it's it's quite um it's, it don't it, show it, a patient that's all i have it's to big <laughs> but um can i go back real quick i missed a question regarding the elegard um, yeah sure Olivia. um so she wanted to know how important it is to have the med at room temperature um it's, it's essential yeah yeah and and you know what to be quite it's thick it's really thick so if you leave it out and leave it at room temperature yeah yeah no it's it's it has to be brought up to room temperature now a tip there's no reason you can't hold it in your hand and your my hand is a little warmer than the room air and it'll come up to temperature quicker and that's a lot of times what i'll do but i definitely make sure that it's it's uh brought up to room temperature all right, John, any thoughts on Zolodex? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Send it off. Have you guys used much of it? No. Yeah, we, again, it never really had much traction in our office. Fortunately, we, I think we tried everything there ever was, but uh, some of them, as Lori mentioned, they didn't really stick stick very well. So, yeah, not much on that. All right, now we're going to move into Trellstar. This is another IM. In this video, you'll learn how to prepare Trellstar triptorellum pamoate for injectable suspension using the mixject system. Put on gloves immediately prior to preparing the injection. Next, place the sealed tray on a clean flat surface. Peel the cover away from the tray and remove the Trellstar vial and the mixject components. Remove the flip-off button from the top of the vial, revealing the rubber stopper, and place the vial in an upright position on the prepared surface. Disinfect the rubber stopper with an alcohol wipe. Discard the alcohol wipe and allow the stopper to dry. You are now ready to proceed to mixject activation. Step 2. Apply the mixject vial adapter. Peel the cover away from the blister pack containing the vial adapter. Do not remove the vial adapter from the blister pack. On a level surface, place the blister pack containing the vial adapter firmly on the vial top. Ensure the spike is centered and vertical when piercing the vial. Push down gently until you feel it snap into place. Remove the blister pack from the vial adapter. Ensure that the lure lock for needle connection is tight. Step 3. Prepare the syringe and connect to the vial adapter. Screw the plunger rod into the gray stopper in the barrel end of the syringe. Grasp the plastic spin lock collar on the syringe barrel with index finger and thumb. 
Unscrew and discard the gray rubber cap from the syringe barrel. Next, maintain your grip on the spin lock, ensuring that you have clear visibility of the connection. Attach the syringe to the vial adapter by screwing the spin lock clockwise into the opening on the side of the vial adapter. Gently twist the syringe until it stops churning to ensure a tight connection. It is important to not over-tighten the syringe. Please note that over-tightening can result in a poor connection and leakage. Step 4. Transfer the diluent into the vial. While keeping the syringe and vial securely coupled in an upright position, slowly push the plunger to transfer all of the diluent into the vial. Ensure that diluent rinses the sides of the vial. Continue to the next steps without delay. Step 5. Mix the Trellstar suspension. Grip the vial and vial adapter firmly and shake for 30 seconds to mix the contents thoroughly. If there is still sedimentation in the vial, shake again. This will ensure complete mixing of Trellstar and the sterile water diluent. The suspension should now appear homogeneous and milky. In order to avoid separation of the suspension, proceed to the next steps without delay. At this stage of preparation, the product must be injected within less than two minutes from reconstitution. Step 6. Load the syringe with Trellstar. Invert the mix-jack system so that the vial is at the top. Hold the mix-jack system firmly by the lure lock connection and syringe barrel and pull back the plunger rod slowly to draw the reconstituted Trellstar into the syringe. Next, rotate the mix-jack system so the syringe is vertical. Remove air bubbles by expelling air into the vial, but do not propel the suspension beyond the lure lock. Step 7. Disconnect the vial adapter. Return the vial to its upright horizontal position. Hold the barrel and lure lock firmly. With your other hand, disconnect the vial adapter and vial from the mixjack syringe by grasping the plastic cap of the vial adapter and turning it clockwise. Be sure to grasp only the plastic vial adapter cap when removing. Step 8. Prepare the needle for injection. Just prior to administration, perform at least five inversions with the syringe to resuspend the particles. Lift up the safety cover and remove the clear plastic needle shield by pulling it from the assembly. The safety cover should be perpendicular to the needle with the needle facing away from you. Do not prime the needle. The syringe containing the Trellstar suspension is now ready for administration. Please note the suspension should be administered immediately after reconstitution to avoid excessive thickening. Step 9. Administration. Administer the injection by inserting the needle at a 90-degree angle into the large gluteal muscle. Ensure that the full amount of the product is injected within 10 seconds without interruption. Injection sites should be alternated. Step 10. Activating the safety lock after injection. After administering the injection, immediately activate the safety mechanism by centering your thumb or forefinger on the textured finger pad area of the safety cover and pushing it forward over the needle until you hear or feel it lock in place. Use the one-handed technique and activate the mechanism away from yourself and others. Immediately discard the syringe into a sharps container after a single use.
All right. So pluses, it's similar to Lupron, ventral gluteal, IM, very painless to give, small needle. Uh, I mentioned I'm kind of lazy. <laughs> That's a lot of steps to, to mix it. So, and again, this is an opinion piece. I'm not saying anything, you know, as far as efficacy of the medications, et cetera, just as a nurse, when you've got a busy schedule, that's a lot of steps to mix it. So um, the other question or, or a tip I, I have that I'll bring out is I teach a lot of nurses for the first time how to give all these drugs. And I have yet to have one of my new nurses learning, not have it, uh, disc, not tighten it well enough and have it spray all over the place. So it's the most uh, wasted one that we've had in our, in our practice. Uh, so make sure you do get that thing tight when you screw it on because otherwise it can just spray all over the place. Uh, John, I'll go to you next. Any thoughts? Yeah, it's always something that you have to keep in mind. These medications cost thousands of dollars potentially, depending on how much dose that you're delivering. So it's important to follow these instructions. And unfortunately, some of these formulations tend to clog up the syringe sometimes. And that means you end up having to waste that drug or what usually happens, you report to your higher ups and then that person will have to go to the manufacturer to seek yeah. reimbursement, which is a lot of headache, a lot of work on the back end. Yep. And uh, that's another plug, no financial interest by my on my part. That's another plug for Camp Sevy. No, you don't have to mix it, warm it yeah. up to room temperature, deliver it subcutaneously, and it's super quick and easy. Lori? Yeah, I agree. Troll Star is just too many steps. Um, the one thing that I did the opposite of, and, and I put it tight enough, but I actually did it too tight, and it cracked the hub. Oh, yeah. And I have so seen that, too. I learned my lesson on that one. Um, and I know that just to go back to some of these medications, it's really important position-wise when you're going to put that needle on. Because if you don't have it in the right position, you take that, that um, vial or whatever it is off, and that medication will shoot out. So make yeah. sure you have it in the proper position. Um, and then also the air. So I know some of these, you know, this one showed that you get rid of the air, but like an Oligard, it does look like when you're, when you're um, mixing it up, it looks like a lot of air, but they say it's okay. So don't try to get rid of that air. Or you're going to lose the medication. Yep. Yeah, good point. I think that's one of the things I thought with this uh, particular talk is, these tips and tricks are going to hopefully keep some people from having that first uh, ep you know, episode where they mix it the wrong way. So you kind of take it, take our mistakes and learn from them, folks, because <laughs> it really makes a difference. All right. This next one is uh, I don't have a video for it because, again, I've never given it. I have assisted with it. We've done very few in our office, but it's kind of neat. It's a 12 month implant. So as far as, you know, one and done for especially people that are traveling, et cetera. It's a, it's a nice option. So I do have pictures of what it looks like. Um, it's just this little inserter. It's uh, uh, done, like I said, we have our, our uh, physicians do it. I'm guessing uh, probably advanced practice nurse would be able to put the implant in. Um, and then when they're done, you just put pressure on it. Again, blood thinners would have to be stopped put pressure on it so it doesn't bleed. We usually close it with just a Steri strip, and it's really been a, a simple procedure to do. So I'm going to scoot over to our next one. So we've gone through the ones that were called agonists. So they work by stimulating and overstimulating. But, you know, you might say, well, why don't you just turn things off with a GNRH 
antagonist. And it came along finally by a uh, drug called Firmigan or Degarelics. And the way it works is it binds reversibly to the pituitary GNRH receptors, thus blocking the luteinizing hormone, the follicle-stimulating hormone, and decreasing testosterone. So we don't have to worry about that flare effect. It's very uh, uh, just drop down to nadir levels uh, for testosterone with the use of the medication. And I think, yeah, I thought I had one more slide. Um, the only problem, the drawback with it is it's only good for 28 days. So you have to give it every 28 days and it does require a loading dose. So you have to give it with a, a big dose of 240 to start, and then it's 80 milligrams thereafter. And I do have a little video. Firmagon is administered as a deep subcutaneous injection in the abdominal region only. A Firmagon 240 milligram starting dose is given as two subcutaneous injections of 120 milligrams. Maintenance doses are administered monthly, every 28 days, with the first Firmagon 80 milligram dose given 28 days after the starting dose. In addition to the items in the kit, you will also need the following. Before you begin the injection process, be sure to wash your hands with soap and water. First, uncap the vial containing the Firmagon powder. Wipe the rubber stopper on the vial with an alcohol pad. Carefully peel open the vial adapter. It is important not to touch the sterile spike inside of the adapter. Next, be sure to firmly press the vial adapter onto the vial containing the Firmagon powder until the adapter snaps into place. Then, pull the packaging off the vial adapter. To assemble the syringe, insert the plunger rod into the back of the pre-filled syringe. Then, screw the plunger rod clockwise to tighten. Also, be careful not to pull the stopper or flange off of the back of the syringe. To transfer the sterile water from the syringe to the vial, unscrew the gray syringe cap attached to the lure lock adapter on the syringe. Be sure not to pull off the lure lock adapter. Carefully twist the pre-filled syringe onto the vial adapter until it is tight. Be careful not to over-twist the syringe. Press the plunger slowly to transfer all of the sterile water from the syringe to the Firmagon vial. The reconstituted medication must be administered within one hour after the addition of the sterile water. With the syringe still attached to the vial adapter, gently swirl the vial until the liquid is clear with no powder or visible particles. Be sure not to shake the vial, as this will cause bubbles. If the powder adheres to the side of the vial, tilt the vial slightly. A ring of small air bubbles on the surface of the liquid is acceptable. Reconstitution time can take up to 15 minutes, but usually takes a few minutes. Now that Firmagon is reconstituted, you must transfer it back into the syringe for injection. To do so, turn the vial completely upside down and pull the plunger to withdraw all of the reconstituted medicine from the vial to the syringe. To expel any air bubbles, press the plunger to the line marked on the syringe. Now that the medication is in the syringe, carefully unscrew the vial adapter and the empty vial from the syringe. Then, screw the injection needle clockwise to attach it to the syringe. When you are ready to administer the injection, select one of the four available sites on the abdomen. No injection should be given in areas exposed to pressure or irritation, such as around the belt, waistband, or close to the ribs. Be sure to note the injection site for reference at the next treatment and vary the injection site to minimize discomfort to the patient.
Once you have chosen the injection site, clean the skin with an alcohol pad. Move the needle shield away from the needle and carefully remove the needle cover. To perform the injection, pinch and elevate the skin of the abdomen. Insert the needle into the skin at a 45 degree angle all the way to the hub of the needle. To be sure you do not inject into a vein or muscle, gently pull back on the plunger to check if blood is aspirated. Perform a slow, deep, subcutaneous injection over 30 seconds. Trauma can occur in the dermal layer if the product is injected too fast, which could result in a reaction. Be sure to inject all the medication in the syringe before removing the needle from the abdomen. Once the needle is removed, continue to hold the skin for approximately 15 seconds to allow the injection tract to close, then release the skin. After the injection is complete, place the needle guard over the needle and dispose of the entire syringe in a sharps container. Once the injection is complete, be sure to instruct your patient not to rub or scratch the injection site. It is important for them to keep the injection site clean and wear loose clothing to avoid irritating the site. Inform the patient that they may feel a lump at the injection site and experience redness, soreness and discomfort for a few days after the injection. This lump is a depot, or medication deposit, that forms after the injection. It supplies the body with a continuous release of Firmagon over time and will eventually subside. Remind your patients to call if they have any questions and to schedule their next dose of Firmagon. So there we have it. So this drug is really nice in that, you know, patient with the high Gleason score, the high PSA, maybe bony mets on the, the bone scan, you know, much safer to give this drug because it's going to drop immediately, like doing castration surgery. So it's uh, great for that. Um, mixing is, it's better than, than trial star, but it's still a little inconvenient in the mix method. Um, administration really abdomen's super easy to give. And uh, if you have a really skinny patient, maybe a little di more difficult, but otherwise pretty easy to give. The one thing I will say is I've seen more patients with a red type reaction afterwards than without. And you have to let the patients know that it's okay, that it's going to happen. You're going to see some redness at the site and it usually resolves on its own pretty quickly. So it's not something that they're going to be, you know, coming back the next month and still complaining of. But the other thing is that pellet uh, that it forms underneath the skin that they talk about, they may still be able to feel that when they come back for their next injection. And a lot of times I can still feel it. So it does take a while for that to disappear completely. So those are the big tips I have on it. Uh, again, great drug if, in the cases where patients have a higher risk of going on an agonist type drug. In our practice, we have used it. Um, a lot for those patients and then switch them over to the agonist because of the convenience. Again, one month nowadays is just not really convenient for patients. They want the longer lasting. So Lori, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So, so I used to do a lot of, um, dagger relics and yeah, the 28 days is, is pretty inconvenient. It's hard to track those people, especially when they have to come in every 28 days. Yeah. Um, but we used to give it with, obviously, with bone mets with Exgeva. So they had to come in. They usually came in for both shots. Um, Good point. Yeah, but I remember when we first started Dagorelix, we thought all these people were having these bad react, you know, allergic reactions to them because we weren't really educated in it. 
But yeah, you got to tell them that in most cases, like you said, Vic, most of them will get a red area and swelling and they think that something happened and something's wrong. And if they yep. don't know, they're going to be calling. Yep. Patient education is huge. John? Like Lori mentioned earlier, getting that prior authorization is going to be important. And Degorales, that company, has good mechanisms in place to help you achieve that so that the patient doesn't have to bear the cost of the medication. I like the fact that it is an antagonist. Gosh, for how long have we asked for that, right? Yes. So I'm glad that I'm glad that is available. So you don't have to use ketoconazole, bicalutamide, and all that stuff along with the LHRH agonist. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. Now I have a few more slides to cover here. Um, so we mentioned that all these drugs come in various dosing from one month to six months. And uh, sometimes it's it, all of them have these like little paper calculators that you could dial in the dose. Uh, but I found this thing on the web, and this is Eligard who happens to have it. You put when the injection site is last given, and then what uh, dose you're giving, and it'll tell you when the next appointment date can be, when it can be given. This is important, and John can probably back me up on this, because um, if you give it too soon, the insurance company will uh, not pay for it, and the patient won't be too happy if they get stuck with it. If you've got a phone and you see that little QR code sticking up there that says dosing calculator, just scan that. It'll bring you to this website and save you the time of trying to figure out where it's at by Googling it. But I thought this was really handy, and uh, it's what I used all the time to calculate before I would give a drug uh, the repeat drug, make sure I've got the right uh, window of opportunity. Uh, side effects, just briefly go over those that we want to tell patients. They may notice some decrease in the sides of their testicles. Uh, for some reason, a lot of guys notice that right away, so they complain about it. Uh, but the other one is libido. They're, it's going to knock testosterone is the, the sex drive hormone, and it's going to knock that down. May or may not cause erection problems, depending on how much it, uh, you know, libido plays into it. It doesn't necessarily have to, but a lot of patients complain of sexual side effects from it. The other thing that I hear a lot about is the side effect of uh, hot flashes. That one drives guys crazy. Um, so, and it varies. I mean, I have some patients that'll have, you know, uh, an occasional hot flash and no big deal. And other guys coming in, they're like, this is terrible. I can't stand it. And there are some options out there that you can, you know, take and explore with patients that are on it, some antidepressants uh, that seem to help for it. There's a, a whole list of things that we can almost do a show on hot flash treatments, some over-the-counter things that can be utilized, but that seems to be one that bothers most patients. Let them know it can happen, you know, so they're not worried. Is this something unusual? The other thing is it can cause some breast uh, enlargement for men. Um, and can cause some breast tenderness. And that sometimes can be a big complaint. Patients will notice it. And if they know that to expect it, it's not so bad. But, uh, and, and there is even some weight gain that can occur with uh, the use of these drugs. So those are all side effects that we need to be aware of. And now I'm going to go ahead and bring my experts back on because we can handle any questions that are out there. If you have any questions in the audience, please put those through. There is a thing called Ask Euronurse on the website. And I have had a couple people use that, and I did get a question that came in from Nadine. She said, why did why antiandrogen is not being used in conjunction with LHRH treatment since they work through different pathways? And that is a, an option. What they use the term is total blockade, where you would give you know, something like uh, biclutamide and Lupron together to try to get a total 
androgen blockage because there is some testosterone that comes from uh, other sources in the testicles. So that is an option out there. Um, I don't know what the panelists' thoughts are on that. Do you use it, John, in your practice or? Well, thankfully, we're catching prostate cancer, hopefully earlier on, <laughs> instead of the aggressive prostate cancer with extremely high PSA, Gleason 8, Gleason 9, sometimes Gleason 10. In those instances, that's when I want that immediate total androgen blockade. And that's yeah. when you administer both the like ketoconazole so you can block everything and then administer sometimes an LHRH agonist so that the medication has time to castrate, chemically castrate the uh, patient. Yeah, good point. Um, Lori, do you be using much of it in your practice? Not a whole the, lot anymore, but yes, yeah. you do see those occasional, well, they'll, they'll start the biclutamide and then give the injection and then eventually go off the biclutamide and just stay on the injection. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's a whole new, you know, since, since I started practice, there's a whole new field called advanced prostate cancer, which has a whole group of drugs and a whole different, you know, realm. So as John said, you know, luckily we catch prostate cancer a lot sooner. So we're not seeing those guys coming into the wheelchairs. Thank God anymore. I mean, that was uh, just terrible to see. Um, but, you know, and there's a whole nother host of drugs. I mean, it's, uh, it's really crazy how many new drugs have come out. It's great. You know, I think there's been a lot of money pumped into prostate cancer research, which has helped to drive it. Being a guy, I'm glad to hear that. Hopefully I'll never have to use it, but it's good to know it's out there. So besides all these new tests that can diagnose more quickly, that's the other option out there. Um, yeah, any stuff, final stuff, words? Stuff we never learned about, like uh, genomic testing, genetic testing during residency. Never heard about genomic genetic testing. And then now you have PSMA scans, and then you have PARP inhibitors for uh, treatment later on. So it's, it's, it's an interesting time. Yeah. I used to always joke, the, the nice thing about urology is you didn't have to think too much. <laughs> that's changed. It's oh, yeah. Really it's, it's become a real thinking uh, field again. But so much right. of it could be algorithmic. You, you have to, you can establish pathways. Yeah. So, so you can have an APC nurse practitioner, advanced prostate cancer nurse practitioner that handles a cohort of prostate cancer patients in your practice to yeah, optimize absolutely. their care. And I think that's really what, what we do in our practice is we do have, you know, people who specialize just in that area. So we're big practice, but we take our advanced cancer and put it into uh, see our advanced prostate cancer clinic. So, all right, well, I'm going to put a plug in for next week's show. This webinar will discuss the radical success in the treatment of urinary stone disease using shockwave lithotripsy. We report a single treatment success rate of 99.1% in an analysis of 700 patients. Results were tracked through clinical surveillance and verified by an independent urologist. Patient selection by referring urologists and technical competence by experienced litho trip to graphers using state-of-the-art equipment were paramount in achieving this higher-than-usual success rate. Join us next Saturday on Euronurse.com. Yeah, so join us next week. This will be interesting. This is an RN and tech-owned uh, ESWL machine rather than the conventional, uh, our own typically by physician practices. So He's going to talk about his, his experience with that. So join us next week on Euronurse.